My name is Will Duvall. I'm the associate pastor here at West Hills. Um, it is such a blessing to have you with us. It's, it's great to see, especially so many new faces this morning. Um, really excited to have you all here with us. My hope and prayer is that you'll be equally blessed um, through your time with us this morning. This summer, uh, we have been examining uh, some of the simple prayers of the Bible. That's our sermon series right now, and specifically what they have to teach us about our own prayer lives. And uh, specifically, last week, we started our four-part sub-series within the series, uh, zooming in specifically on the Lord's Prayer. And so in part one, last week, we studied verses 5 through 9a, the context for the prayer that Jesus is going to teach us these next three weeks. And mostly, we learned last week how not to pray. Uh, we, we learned we not to pray uh, like the atheists who don't pray at all um, and view God as irrelevant we, we don't pray to be seen like the religious hypocrites who treat God as a means to an end. Uh, we don't pray anxiously like the, the pagan uh, Gentile doubters who doubt God's trustworthiness. Instead, as followers of Jesus, he tells us in verse 9 that our prayers ought to be grounded, rooted in God's unchanging goodness and faithfulness to us, his beloved children. Our prayers are grounded in his identity as our Father. And so before we really get rolling this morning, uh, I just want to pause um, before we even get going and re-ask last week's sort of central governing question for us all again. Who is God to you? All right, because it's a, it's a question we all need to consistently reassess in our hearts, but especially because some of you weren't here last week. Who is God to you? And without stopping to take the time to... Um, walk us through and share the, the whole gospel with you right now and who God is as Father and who Jesus is as our older brother who uh, is also our Lord and our Savior. Um, I just want to, to say if you're here and you're questioning any or all of that, we are so glad you're here and we just want you to know that West Hills is a safe place to do that. Um, you're in good company and we are figuring it out together. Um, this particular passage and message may be a little tough. Um, it is, after all, the Lord's Prayer, and so if, uh, if you're still not sure who Jesus is for you, that could, could be tricky, but I just want to say we would love to talk to you, myself or any of our elders, after um, the service today. I, I tend to think that those kind of deeper-rooted um, questions of, of faith really usually get fleshed out better in relationship and dialogue anyways. Um, so we won't get into a lot of that this morning, but please do. We would love to talk. Um, it is absolutely my favorite part of my job um, as much as I do love preaching. So with that being said, would you all stand with me now as we read um, God's Word together? Our passage we're looking at this morning is just one verse. It was not a typo in your bulletin, Matthew 6, verse 9. So let's actually read it aloud together now. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you uh, now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes and touch our hearts this morning uh, to see you for who you are, Father, and to see ourselves for who we are and for who you've made us to be. Would you receive all the glory and your name be hallowed amongst your people this morning? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week and this week alike, we um, had this central theme traced throughout that how we pray 
is determined by who we're addressing. How we relate to, to, to anyone is determined by who it is, their identity that we're addressing. Anybody watch that show, Undercover Boss? Anybody? Great show, great TV. They, they take uh, a company CEO, they throw a wig on him, and um, then they have him intern for a week with a, a few different low-level employees at the company. And the best part of every episode, if you do watch it, you'll know, is always the last 10 minutes, right? Because the fake mustache comes off, and one by one, the boss calls all these employees in to reveal his true identity to them. And you love that touching moment where the super nice, hardworking, single mom of like 14, um, you know, who previously told us she works like 10 other jobs to just pay to feed her family. She receives like a $100,000 check to send all her kids to, to college, whatever, whatever. But the real part that you love watching about an undercover boss is the next guy they call in because he's the guy that was a jerk all week long to the CEO of the company, right? When he thought he was just this low-level intern. And, and this guy has to sit there and watch a video playback of the entire week of himself goofing off on the job and bad-mouthing his superiors and making fun of the CEO of the company for not flipping french fries right. All right that, that's the best moment of the show because everything is, is this guy, you know, has this moment of reckoning. Everything about this guy's demeanor instantly changes as he recognizes his boss's true identity. Why? Because how we interact is determined by who we think we're interacting with. This morning, in just this one verse, I think Jesus is going to give us four theological truths about God's nature, bullet points about who God is, each of which impacts the way that we ought to address and relate to God himself. And so we're going to pick up where we left off last week in the first half of verse 9. Uh, if, if you'll turn there, if you haven't already with me. Point number one, God is, first of all, approachable. God is approachable. That's kind of inherent in the understanding of prayer itself. Jesus says, pray then like this, which is to say in that phrase, pray then like this, for starters, that we approach God candidly, okay? We, we, we approach him sincerely, genuinely, Jesus doesn't say, pray this. He doesn't say, pray this exactly, these specific magical words that you need to recite. He says, pray like this, hutos, in this manner. Remember, he's already warned us in verse 7 against the empty phrases of the Gentiles. Jesus has no interest in giving us another list of ritual incantations to recite by rote, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That when we do that with the Lord's Prayer, we are fundamentally going against what he's just told us not to do in verse 7 with the Gentiles. How many of y'all grew up, if you're honest, praying the Lord's Prayer like that, right? I mean, it was just kind of from memory. How many of y'all prayed it before every game, you know, baseball game, football game, whatever, and, and your coach would say, you know, all right, I want you to go out there and shove the ball so far down their throat that they're still tasting it for dinner. All right, let's break it down. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And you did that, right? And it's almost like, you, you know, if you, could, if you knew the prayer better and could say it faster, or especially if you were praying, uh, playing those godless heathens from the public school that didn't pray at all before the games, God would be on your side and you could just ritually invoke his name to, to be for your team, right? That's not, that's, Jesus is, is 
warning us against that here. He's saying, no, pray like this, in this manner, authentically, genuinely, from your heart. The way that Jesus would have prayed these words originally, the very first time he ever uttered them here in Matthew 6. And by the way, um, nothing against the old King James that we all grew up learning, but just so we're all on the same page, we know you don't have to pray who, who art and thine and thou and thee and all of that stuff. You don't have to pray in the king's English for God to hear you, right? I mean, we're all on the same page about that. Genuinely, from your heart, from your own vocabulary, that's what Jesus is asking. Secondly, pray then like this, our, our we could spend an entire sermon on just that word. Did you notice there's not a single first-person pronoun anywhere in this prayer? He's not just my father, he's ours. We approach him corporately then. Sure, we might at times pray privately, as Jesus instructed us to in verse 6, but we never pray independently. We're never alone in prayer. In fact, that's one of prayer's greatest comforts to us, right? When you turn to God, because you feel like you don't have anyone else to turn to and you feel all alone in the world, that word our should remind us that we have not only a heavenly father, but because of that, we have all these earthly brothers and sisters too, and that at any given moment, there's literally thousands of adopted siblings all over the world crying out to our same dad. It's a beautiful thing. Moreover, that our reminds us that not only prayer, but faith itself is a communal experience. It draws us out of ourselves and into community with others. In Scripture, God is always concerned with a community of faith, with, with calling and redeeming a people, a family of faith, back to himself. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament. Biblical faith is always a team sport. I'll stick with the sports analogy this morning. Owning a football doesn't make you a football player. You've got to be on a team. It's just, it's inherent to team sports and, and to faith. Pray then like this. Our Father, Father, we approach God confidently. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help and grace in the time of need. Why such confidence before the almighty sovereign God of the universe? Because we're his children now. We're his children. It's our adopted birthright. Jesus doesn't make it just simply possible for us to pray boldly. He commands it. Listen to what he says in Matthew 7. He says, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. He says in, in John 14, go on, ask me anything in my name, try me, and I'll do it. Now, it's got to be in his name. It's got to be in accordance with his will. We'll look at that more next week. But Jesus says, be bold. Be bold in your prayers. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. It's that simple. First John puts it this way, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked him. Here's Jesus' visual of what he's getting at here in Luke chapter 11. He says, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, 
for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. That's the culture of the day, hospitality. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, that's all right, I had to look it up too. It literally means his shameless boldness, his barefaced audacity. Because of the sheer embarrassing nerve and annoyance of this guy, his buddy will rise and give him whatever he needs. Do we understand what Jesus just ordered us to do in his word? Jesus just ordered you to bother God. Pester him. Isaiah 62 says, give him no rest. What kind of God would not only invite that from us, but expect it? Only the kind of God who is Father. Here's how Pastor Tim Keller says it. He tells a story of serving on an interfaith panel with a Muslim imam who asked him how he could dare to bother God, the sovereign Lord of the universe, for his daily bread, for forgiveness from his trespasses, for guidance, for deliverance, for all the, the petitions, the, the botherings that Jesus is going to instruct us in two weeks from now in the Lord's Prayer. And Keller said, I'd never really considered it before, but I realized in that moment that Islam has no concept of God as Father. And the way that Keller puts it so beautifully is the only person that dares to wake a king up at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is his child. Right? You wake me up at 3 in the morning for a glass of water or a loaf of bread or in the middle of an existential crisis, and probably unless you're on fire or something, it can wait until the morning. But if Ellery wakes me up, I'm her father. She's my daughter. Right? She, she has free reign to wake me up whenever she needs to. And Polly's laughing because she's like, can I get that in writing? Um, <laughs> because she's a much lighter sleeper than me. And so she tends to bear the brunt of Ellery's wakings in the middle of the night. You're an awesome mom. Uh, point number two, our Father in heaven. In heaven, Jesus highlights here that God is transcendent. He is transcendent. And so we revere him humbly. We'll check back with the dictionary again. Transcendent means beyond or above the range of normal or merely physical human experience, existing apart from and not subject to the limitations of the material universe. Jesus immediately shifts us from the intimacy and the imminence, the closeness of God as daddy to remind us that he's also in heaven. Uh, yes, he's closer to us than our very breath, but at the same time, he's also so far above us and beyond us that we can never dream of comprehending him, much less having a relationship with him, unless he willingly condescends to our level. That is the kind of God, he's so much bigger and mightier and higher than us. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts, declares the Lord. He's equally imminent and transcendent. Kent Hughes notes, Jesus' use of Abba to address God was revolutionary because Jewish theology of his day stressed the transcendence of God. The problem among some evangelical Christians today is the opposite. They have sentimentalized God's fatherhood so much 
so that they have little concept of his holiness. Jesus provides the remedy to both errors with his opening words, Our Father in heaven. So I ask us, West Hills, what about our concept of God? I read a recent blog post this week from a pastor who, after one of his sermons, decided to leave the last five minutes open for a time of congregational, responsive, spontaneous prayer. And specifically, he encouraged them to pray over the attributes of God. And what he said was, what stood out to him the most was not the attributes that they named, but the ones that they didn't. I mean, you could probably guess. God, you are loving, merciful, forgiving, compassionate, kind, uh, good, father, all true, all essential to God's nature and who he is. But the pastor reflected, you know what? I think if we'd asked Isaiah or Daniel or Ezekiel or really any of the prophets from the Old Testament who wrote over a sixth of the Bible or Moses who wrote another sixth of the Bible or really anyone from the, the Old Testament for sure and probably most of the New Testament writers as well. If we'd asked them, I bet the number one answer you would hear is, God, you are terrifying terrifying. And and remember, he is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow, right? There's no such thing as an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. And if you don't believe me about the terrifying thing, just notice the way that, that some of these men and authors from both Testaments react upon having firsthand encounters with God. Let's consider a couple examples this morning. Moses, in Exodus 33, when he asked to see God's glory as a sign of reassurance before leading Israel towards the promised land, here's what we hear. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim uh, before you my name, the Lord. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. You'll die. You can't encounter me, Moses. You'll die. Daniel, this brother straight up stared lions down without sweating in the lion's den. But when God shows up, he says, my radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face on the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. How about the priests? I mean, surely these guys, I mean, it is their entire job to mediate between the people and God. You know, being in the presence of the Lord is what they do. And yet when Solomon dedicates his temple in 1 Kings 8, this is what we hear. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. They were overcome with God's presence. I mean, we, we sang this morning, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Come invade this place with your, your presence. We've, that's beautiful, but we've got to be careful what we're asking for, right? I mean, these guys, like, you fall as if dead when God is in your presence. And in the New Testament, how about Saul slash Paul's conversion experience of of the resurrected Jesus in Acts chapter 9? He tells us it left him blinded for three days. He couldn't eat or drink anything. 
Or read John's reaction when God called him to write the book of Revelation. He said, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze were fine in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the shining sun in full strength. Quick public service announcement. There is a total solar eclipse happening in two weeks. The first one that will be visible from the, United, the continental United States in like 70 years. Don't look at it. I listened to an entire NPR special about this. You will go blind, okay? So buy the special glasses if you really want to see it. Uh, but that's what J John is doing here. He's staring straight into the sun. He's blinded, right? And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So to recap, Blinded, muted, paralyzed, as if dead. So, the next time somebody tells you that they had an experience with God and they know it was Him because they felt overcome by this warm, freeing feeling, ask them if it was the urine running down their legs. Because if so, then it was probably God. If they were convulsing in the fetal position, unable to speak or think or move, then it was probably an experience with God. And, and I say that somewhat jestfully, um, and, I, and I, really, I don't mean to, to, to dismiss or make light of other experiences of God, because yes, God is simultaneously the essence of love and peace and joy. And, and if you feel like you've had a direct experience of God's presence and light and love in your life, then praise the Lord, I, I have too. But I, I, and I would never want to diminish that, but what I, we do need to balance that with this morning is this important insight that I ran across this week uh, as I researched from an author who was reviewing Kevin DeYoung's excellent book, The Whole in Our Holiness. And this author said, only when we discover the holiness of God will we be overwhelmed by his love. Only then will we realize how truly good the news of the gospel is, that this holy God turns out to be a lover, that the temple curtain designed to protect us is now torn to let us in. The, the path to appreciating God's love is through his holiness. So here's what I want to do this morning. I, I hope that this will be meaningful and worshipful to you. For the next couple minutes, I just want to read aloud for you several passages that remind us of the utter transcendence of our God. And while I do that, I want to encourage you to just close your eyes and listen and meditate. And specifically, here's what you can meditate on. The words of, the King, of King David, who though he was more powerful than any of us in this room have ever dreamed of being, said in, in Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So would you, as you listen to a couple more of these passages, just, just humble yourself, listen, allow God to remind you of how big he is, how small you are, and ask yourself this morning, who am I that a God like you would be mindful of someone like me? Hear the word of the Lord. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? 
deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all the moves in the field are mine. For the world and its fullness are mine. You are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by humans' hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Now, here's the most shocking, outrageous, outlandish, implausible, unbelievable, wonderful truth in all of Scripture, brothers and sisters. That God is your Father. That kind of God cares about you. That God loves you. He takes notice of you. He numbers the the hairs on your head. And when we realize that that's the kind of God that we're dealing with, and yet that's how he feels about us, then and only then do we begin to grasp a sense of both his transcendence and his imminence, both his fatherness and his in-heavenness. The more we appreciate his all-surpassing greatness over us, the more we appreciate his all-confounding love for us. I remember when uh, Polly and I were first married and living in Nashville and taking her to a concert that a friend of mine was playing. 
this tiny venue, a quarter, half the size of, of this uh, sanctuary, maybe 120 people packed in. Most of them were Drew's family. And Polly randomly bumped into uh, a, a friend of hers from years before, and Polly asked her, how did you even hear about this band? Still kind of obscure at that point. And, and her friend said, oh, I'm here with my, my aunt. She heard about them, and she's scoping them out to see about possibly having them come and open for her on tour. So Polly naturally said, your, your aunt? And she said, yeah, my Aunt Amy. And Polly said, Amy. She said, come on, we've definitely talked about this. Amy Grant, my aunt. And you have to understand that my wife would have been totally starstruck to have met Amy Grant's former backup vocalist understudy because she just loves her some Amy Grant that much. So after I finished helping her pick her jaw up off the floor, her friend asked, so do you want to meet her? And you remember that we just read the Moses encounter from Exodus 33, and you remember when he comes off the mountain and he's, and he's glowing like a human flashlight? So for like the next month, Polly's just glowing after this five-minute conversation with Amy Grant, and I'm struggling with a massive inferiority complex, like how am I ever going to be able to, to make my wife happy again when she's met Amy Grant? My question for us this morning is, do we approach the one who made the stars with the same sense of starstruck awe and wonder? Do we light up in his presence? And do we, do we recognize the, the undeserved privilege that it is to even be able to, to address him? Or if we're honest, has God become kind of familiar to us? Even ordinary, we might say, our relationship with God. There's nothing ordinary about the God that we worship. He is transcendent. He deserves every bit of awe and wonder and reverence that we could give him. We revere him humbly. And because he is transcendent, point number three, our Father in heaven, hallowed be. Hallowed, don't even bother closing your dictionary app for this week's sermon. Hallowed is the passive verbal tense of the word holy. To hallow means to make holy. And so to pray hallowed be your name, I think, has two subtly but, but significantly different meanings. And I'll get to the second one in our concluding point number four in a moment. But first of all, when Jesus says hallowed be your name, one meaning that he has in mind is this, I think. God holy is your name. And, and not in like the grammatically incorrect rap song version of this, like, hallowed be your name, you know, God, you be so holy. Not, not like that, but, but it's more like your name will be hallowed, God, because you are so holy. God, may you hallow your holy name. Now, to really get what Jesus is saying here, I think we've got to grasp both what he means by the word holy and what he means by the word name. So to be holy is to be set apart, is to be totally unique, 
different, special. Throughout Scripture, God is, above all else, holy. It's, of all the attributes of God, his goodness, perfection, love, mercy, holiness is referenced more frequently in Scripture than any other. God is holy. So to hallow, to make holy, means to set apart. Or another fancy Bible word, to consecrate, to sanctify. Now, this idea of hallowing God's name, it's not original to Jesus. It's all over the place in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 22, God commanded his people, You shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. And then later, when they disobey and they do profane his name, God proclaims years later in Ezekiel 36, God, uh, for the sake of my holy name, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned, and the nations will know that I am the Lord. You and I probably recognize this concept of hallowing God's name most prominently today as the third of God's top ten greatest commandments. Right? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The meaning of which goes way beyond just not dropping the GD bomb when you stub your toe. That is not just what God is, is, is saying. The Hebraic idea of taking in vain means to take lightly, casually, to treat it flippantly, to treat the Lord's name like you would any other name, any other word. Think of the story when God reveals his name for the first time in history to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. Now, before this, for thousands of years, God's own people, everyone, had just called God El, which just means God in Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word for God. It's a title. It's not his name. But then in Exodus 3, God tells Moses to go set my people free from slavery in Egypt. And Moses asks, why in the world are they going to listen to me? And God says, you tell them that I am sent you, Yahweh. It's a unique noun form of the otherwise common Hebrew name, verb, sorry, verb for to be. It means I am who I am. This is God in his very essence. All other names for God are descriptions. El Shaddai, God the Almighty. Jehovah Jireh, God the Provider. Adonai, God my Master, my Lord. Dozens of names throughout Scripture, but this one alone gets at the heart and the nature and the character of God himself. I am the ground of all being, life itself, existence, the reason there's something and not nothing. Yahweh encompasses all of that. And that's another thing that we've got to understand about names in the Bible this morning. Today we pick out names for our kids because they sound pretty. Or sometimes to make money, apparently. I, I read a story about a f couple on Facebook uh, uh, this past week that let their friends on Facebook bid on the name of their baby child. It's, that, by the way, is not just tacky, it's risky, right? Because if you have any college buddies like I do, you'd have to defriend them before you'd even think about letting them bid on your child's name for the rest of its life. Um, but here's the thing. In the biblical world, your name was crucial. You didn't just pick a name because it sounded nice or to pay homage to a family member. It was, it was essential. Why? Because in ancient times, the name was not regarded 
generally as a mere appellation to distinguish one person from another, but rather as an expression of the very nature of the person so indicated. Thus, we get names that mean something deep, like Adam. Quick Bible quiz. What does Adam mean? Man. Yeah. Original. (laughs) Because he's the prototype and the progenitor of all mankind. Abraham means father of a multitude. Yeah, namely the nation of Israel, whose name, Israel, by the way, means God wrestlers. Interesting. Telling. And finally, Jesus, Yeshua. He saves. He rescues. And before God reveals his name, Yahweh, his essence to Moses, he consecrates it. He warns Moses, do not come near. Take off your sandals, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. This is special. This is sacred. This isn't like any ground you've ever walked on before, any bush you've ever seen before, any fire you've ever seen, any conversation you've ever had, any name you've ever heard. This is totally unique, consecrate. So then there developed this fascinating tradition within Judaism of taking this third commandment really, really seriously. After all, Leviticus 24 tells us that the penalty for violating it was whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. Pretty serious stuff. So they take it seriously. Yahweh becomes known as the ineffable name of God, the unutterable name. It's too holy to be said out loud. It was only enunciated once a year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement, but after the temple was destroyed in the year 70 AD, even that stopped. And so here's the thing. This is crazy. This should blow your mind. We say Yahweh today, but did you know that we don't, because ancient Hebrew was made up of only consonants when it was written, and the vowels were simply learned and then inserted when it was spoken orally, did you know that we don't even know how God's name is pronounced today? We say Yahweh because that's our best guess. It could be Yehwah, it could be Yehweh, I mean, it it could be any form of, of vowels you fill in. All we've got is the written form because people didn't even pronounce it because it was that holy. The ancient Jewish scribes who copied the Hebrew Bible treated it with such reverence that before they would write the name, they would go take a bath to make sure they were ritually pure, then they would pray, then they would switch to a brand new pen, and then, and only then, would they write Yahweh. Anyone want to guess how many times the name Yahweh appears in the Hebrew Bible? 6,800 times. That's a lot of baths. That's a lot of wrinkly skin. And if his hand slipped and he made any mistake while he was writing the name itself, he had to throw the entire scroll away. That's a week's worth of work gone. That is how serious these guys consecrated God's name. One of the girls in my Hebrew class in divinity school 
was Jewish. And any time we turned in translation homework in which the name Yahweh appeared, she would ask our professor afterwards, could she collect it? And she would go and she would give it to her rabbi at her local synagogue. And he would say a, a special ritual prayer blessing over it. And then he had to bury it in a special consecrated burial site out back behind the synagogue. That is how serious religious Jews today still treat the name of God. It's holy. But here's the kicker for us this morning. If God's name is to be understood not just as his moniker, not just as a title, but as his very nature and his character, then to hallow it means way more than just switching pens or taking baths or bearing homework. To consecrate God's name means to fundamentally reorient the entire way that we think about all of life from the top down. It means to set apart, to consecrate, not just a special name for God, but God himself. It means to rethink our worship entirely, literally our process of assigning worth to people and things all around us. It means when we hear the two most important verses in the entire Old Testament, the greatest commandment from Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone, and the first commandment from Exodus 23, You shall have no other gods before me. It means that we hear them not as saying, on the list of priorities in your life, make sure that God stays number one. No, it means to hear them as saying, there's not a list. If you're making a list and ranking God amongst other competing items in your life for the throne of your heart, then you've already missed the point. <laughs> you're not hallowing him. Years before I met Polly and I knew what true love was, way back in high school, I fell for a girl really hard. It was your typical dumb, young, puppy love type thing. But that also meant that um, being who I was, I couldn't talk to her um, because I was so brutally shy around, you know, girls that I had a crush on. But we had every class together, tennis to, to together every day. I had a crush on her for a year, um, never said two words to her. But then we made it all the way to state finals in tennis um, our, our sophomore year, and I don't know if it was the adrenaline still kind of coursing through my veins after having played in the biggest match of my life, or if it was just the thrill of the victory and the win itself, but when we went out to eat at the pizza, pizza place after the match, I sat down right across from her, bold, and I, and I talked to her the entire meal about nothing, and it was awesome. It was my, you know, high school hormonal teenager Amy Grant moment, <laughs> and to this day, I don't remember a word that we discussed but the one thing I remember, and here's why I tell the story, and here's, you're going to laugh at how stupid this is. Does anybody remember that Nelly Furtado song, I'm Like a Bird? <laughs> Dumbest song ever written. It, lyrics make no sense. Song was popular at the time. It came on the radio in the pizza place. I, I was just, you know, we are slap happy or whatever, and I started singing along in my girliest falsetto voice, and she thought it was hysterical. She thought it was so funny, and she started laughing. 
And that was the last day of the semester. Uh, we had to take exams early to leave for the match, and so then summer hit, and I didn't know anything about calling girls on the phone or anything, and so we didn't talk the entire summer. And then it was way too awkward to talk to her again when, the, when the, we started back in the fall as juniors. But here's what I did. I went home the day after the pizza experience, and I got on Napster, and I, and I downloaded I'm Like a Bird by Nelly Furtado, and I burned it to a CD and listened to it on repeat the entire summer. Because why would I ever want to listen to another song again? That's how I felt, right? Now listen to me this morning. God doesn't just want to be your favorite current song on the playlist of top hits radio. He wants to be on a CD by himself on repeat. That's what it means to consecrate. Why would we ever listen to another song? Do we worship him alone? Finally, point number four. To pray, hallowed be your name. It means not just to pray that God would consecrate his own name and receive the glory that is due him, but it means that he would do it through me. Father, would you hallow your name in me that I might represent you faithfully because you are worthy. 1 Peter 3.15 exhorts us to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. The second way of understanding this idea from the Bible of what one's name means is that it not only stands for your character, but it stands for your reputation too. That's why Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. The most questionable, borderline, reckless decision that Jesus Christ ever made was to pray to his Father in John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus had the option of asking his Father, praying that, that he would take us out of the world, us Christians, his followers, when we receive him, we just get teletransported up into heaven to be with him. But he says, nope, that's not the plan. Instead, Father, I ask you to sanctify, to consecrate, to hallow them. Hallow us through the power of your word so that I can then send them out into the world to be my ambassadors to a lost and broken people. And the most simultaneously profound and the most dangerous label that you and I will ever claim over our lives is Christian. It literally means little Christ. How audacious of us <laughs> to, to claim the name of Jesus. Do we have the faintest notion of just how holy, how utterly holy and transcendent that name is that we're claiming? But that's exactly what he 
tells us to do. We're adopted into his family. We take Christ's name as our own, and Jesus says, now you go and be my hands and feet on the earth. Represent the family name well. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Let your light shine so that when people see you, they actually see me shining through you. That's the plan. That's the plan is for you and me to be the way that lost people see God and get saved in this world. No pressure. Paul instructs us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Can you imagine a higher calling? To claim his name. Anybody else ever feel like God should have maybe like checked with us before making this the plan? Like, like peeked under the hood a little more closely to see what he's working with here before this became the plan? I, I know at least for me, I many times feel like I just want to throw my hands up with Paul in Romans 7.18 and say, nothing good dwells in me. (laughs) But here's the thing. I guess that's why Jesus made it a prayer. And I guess that's why he prays it in the passive tense. It's not, Father, I'll hallow your name. It's not, Father, Give me the strength to let me hallow your name. Father, hallowed be your name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, when we think about your transcendence and your holiness, we're convicted of our sin, of just how mortal, earthly, finite, creaturely, broken, in need, sinful we are. Father, nothing good dwells in us. But you are the source of all goodness. And the fact that you would condescend to us to show yourself to us in a way we could understand, in a person we could hear from, touch, feel, and love, follow, is so humbling. Yet, Father, would it be so motivating to us this morning? Father, would you motivate us, embolden us to go out, to be your ambassadors, your hands and feet, to represent you well, faithfully, to a world that needs you. Father, your word calls us to be holy as you are holy. Would you do that in us? us. We can't do it ourselves. We need you to make us holy. Hallow your own name in and through us. Not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the world. And we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name.